Are we on tape right now? No, not yet. Okay, we're on. Thank you a lot so much. <clears throat> well, good morning, everyone. Once again, thank you for being here. And I want to emphasize this as we continue in this study of Colossians. You know, there are certain aspects of Scripture that are not more important necessarily than other aspects of Scripture because that we would be evaluating God as this is more important than whatever this and everything he says is equally insignificant. Amen? Everything God says is equally significant. However, there are certain portions of Scripture which bring forth the profundity, profound, the profundity of truth in a way that other areas of Scripture do not do it. And so there are certain passages which are significant in their revelatory experience and what they're saying about the truth of God himself and what he has done in Christ through the atonement on our behalf. One of those would be Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 to 14. One of those would be Philippians chapter 2 verses 6 through 11. And certainly one of them would be Colossians chapter 1 verses 9 through 20. These three among some others would be some of the most profound passages of Scripture concerning the revelation of God and His purpose for us and the achievement and the result of that purpose in Christ that we will find in Scripture. And so what I'm going to do next week, if I remember to do so, and part of that is Evan because I've asked him to help me to remember that, so if it fails, it's all Evan's fault. I have to blame someone is to hand out three by five cards on which we're going to imprint Paul's prayer, the extended prayer, because the prayer itself ends, but he kind of continues. So this whole section of Scripture from Colossians 1, 9, all the way through verse 20. I'm going to put that on three by five cards. And I want to challenge you, I want to uh, encourage you to do this. And I need to do it too because I can quote some of it and then I get confused and I get, you know, so I need also to put it to memory in a better way. We need to memorize this. There are certain passages of Scripture that every believer should know, not only John 3.16, but every believer should know. So we'll be handing those out next week. So in anticipation of that, you might already want to begin to look at that and commit it to memory. So thank you for coming this morning. Father, thank you for your presence. Thank you for the enormity, the glory, the power of your word. Father, we would ask that in every believer in this church, also the church around the world, but especially here is because we're, this is where you have placed us, Father. Would you cause the fire of the Holy Spirit to ignite passion and desire and commitment in us for your word? Father, would your word be that which we seek daily most importantly? Father, would we want to be steeped in your word? Father, would we want to be steeped in the understanding and the wisdom and application of your word? 
Father, we pray that your word will become such a central focus for our lives that out of our mouth when we share with one another, after we say the way yats and how you do's and all that, then we would begin to share what you have done in us through your word. Father, cause your word to be ignited in our hearts in a far greater way. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've gone through the whole section now of Paul saying that we be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Remember that. And why does he want that? Because he wants us to walk in a manner worthy. And so what has God done to cause us to be able to walk in a manner worthy? He has strengthened us with all power, according, remember, to his glorious might. And in doing this, he has qualified us to become saints in light. So that's just a encapsulation of those first verses. That's where we are right now. This morning, what we're going to do is to talk about what Paul says is the reason we are qualified to be saints in light. <clears throat> because someone should ask, well, well, how do we know what has qualified us? Now remember, he has said, according to God's beloved Son, who has qualified us. And so, what are the credentials of this one who has qualified us to become saints in light? And as we talk about this this week and next week, as we continue in this Christological, Christological poem or presentation, which emphasizes who Jesus is and what he has done, called Christological. As we emphasize this Christological uh, portion of Scripture, I want you to begin to think in everything that we have already said and everything that will be said, especially up to verse 20, what is the bottom line proof? How do we know that what Paul said is true? I mean, it's wonderful what he said, it's great to listen to it and look at it, and it's, it's just incredible. But Gordon, how do we know it's true? You know, Burtis, how do we know it's true? Lester, where's the proof? And as we go through this, I want you to think, what proves this? Because as believers, we are called not only to believe the Bible, but to know that the Bible is the truth of God, and that truth stands on a proof. And we need to know what that proof is. Because if we don't, the enemy is going to attack us and our moorings are going to cause us to be able to sway back and forth if we're not anchored clearly in the proof of what God has done to demonstrate that everything in this Bible, from Genesis 1-1 all the way to the end of Revelation 22, that it is all true. There's an event that proves this. Now, by now you should already have in your mind what that is, but we'll talk about that as we go through. So everything we say, ask yourself this, where's the proof? Where's the proof? What proves it? What proves it? Because people, when you share the gospel and you share this astounding news, some of them are going to want to know, how do we know it's true? AJ, who says it? How do we? They're going to want to know that. And we need to be ready and armed in Christ, in the gospel, in a very loving and wise way 
of sharing with them the proof. So this morning, what are the credentials of this one who has qualified us? What has he done? Well, essentially what he has done, he has purchased and delivered us. As we go through this, Bill Treby in his uh, ability to see beyond the normal says this to me this morning. There's not a reference to Colossians in the notes. Now, I apologize for that. Our note, we, we didn't do well on this. So we are in Colossians 1, 13 and 14 this morning, if you want to know where is this that we're talking about. So let's go ahead. Verse 13, our deliverance. First of all, what has qualified us to be saints in life? Verse 13, he, who is he? Christ. God, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Why are we qualified? Because we've been transferred from darkness to light. Why are we qualified to be saints in light? Because God has taken us out of the domain of sin and Satan and has transferred us into the kingdom of His Son. That is the reason we have been qualified. Paul reminds the church that they are saints because God has delivered them from their captivity of, from Satan. Why are you here this morning as a believer? We are here as believers having been qualified because every one of us who are in Christ have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. Now, how did God's people come to be placed in the, in, to the place of needing deliverance? What did we do? How did we get here? that caused us, each one of us, to be needing to be delivered. So let's go back a little bit and look at this. First of all, you remember that God created man in his image. Now, by now and by the time we get finished this study, all of you should know by heart what does Genesis 1.26 say. What? Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Everybody should know that's God's great and grand purpose statement for mankind. If you want to know what is going on, where we're going, why we're here, you know, how to do it, everything about your life, absolutely everything about our life, every aspect, every turn, every thought, every decision, everything about the future, everything about my life and about your life is contained in that verse. So if there's any question about your life, any question at all, first frame it within the context of being God's image bearer. First frame it within that context and then begin to look at the, 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 the aspects of that question and how it is to work out. Because everything about us is to be image bearers. So God created man to be his image bearer, giving Adam, you remember, dominion over the creation. You remember, he gave Adam to rule over this earthly creation. He told Adam, have dominion and rule. And that was to be worked out through Adam's obedience. And so Adam was given to be, if you would, the king of the earth, the ruler of this world. And his progeny, his kids, were to rule with Adam this earth and extend the kingdom of God into the areas beyond the Garden of Eden. So one day the whole world will become God's garden or God's temple on this earth. And as a result of that, God would dwell with his people upon the earth. 
fulfilling his purpose to be that these people would be his image bearers, that he would be imaged in this people who are worshiping him, who are obeying him, who are taking dominion, who are ruling and reigning in his name. And all of this was contingent upon one issue, one issue. And what is that one issue? That they be an obedient people. Let's make sure as believers we understand that grace is all about our obedience by the mercy and power of God. Amen? Grace is all about our obedience by the mercy and power of God's love. It is about obedience because there's some believers who if you put the word obedience into the understanding or the context of grace, they're going to tell you it's no longer grace. It is grace. By God's grace, we have been saved. We have been filled with the Holy Spirit. Why? In order to be his obedient image bearers. Amen? This is what God has done. This is why we've been delivered. And so Adam, everything was contingent. Adam, you must obey. Remember Genesis 2, 16 and 17. The two trees, remember, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, do not eat from it, for in the day that you eat, you shall surely, what, die. But Adam sinned, you remember in Genesis 3, 6, and he ate. Adam sinned by submitting to Satan's will, Satan's rule, Satan's word. Hath God said, do you really believe this is what God meant? Isn't there another way to do this? Don't you think that God would be understanding if you do this? Isn't it okay if we go over here? Do you find in those kinds of ter uh, terms, because I find them in me, that these are terms and these are questions that flow through our minds on a daily basis concerning the various activities and thoughts and desires and motives and actions of our hearts? Anybody with me on these? All of these are not the voice of the Holy Spirit. God never speaks that way. It's always the flesh, Satan through our flesh. Amen? May I disabuse you of the thought. I wonder if this is God saying, I wonder if we could do this. It isn't God. It isn't God. So the better part of valor is don't go with the I wonder stuff. Don't do it. It would be better to miss something of God than to stumble and fall into sin because what you missed in God, he will give you the next time. So you remember, Adam's sin, by submitting to Satan's will or his word. And in submitting to Satan, Adam allowed Satan to gain the authority over all mankind. Remember in John 14, 30, Jesus says what? The ruler of this world comes, but he finds nothing in me. There's no sin in me that he can accuse me. The ruler of this world. Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world in John 14, 30. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. What does Paul say? The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they may not see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ who is the image of God. So how did Satan get to where he got? How did he become just a fallen angel with the ability to 
taunt or to tempt or to do whatever the ma to mankind, but having absolutely no ability to make man do anything or having no authority over man at all until what? Man submitted to Satan's authority, I'm sorry, will. And in doing so, he submitted himself to the rule and authority of Satan. This is how we got in the mess in the first place. As a result, God's people became enslaved to Satan, needing a deliverer. And so Adam's sin, giving Satan the authority over mankind to exercise dominion over the earth, 1 John 5, 19, the entire world lies in the authority of the evil one. And Satan has dominion over the whole world, and he has enslaved everyone to his will. If you would, you don't have to look there today, but 2 Timothy 2.26 talks about we were captive to Satan to do his will. Please read that, and the next time you want to talk about man's free will, make sure you read that verse first because it says we have been captured by Satan to do what? His will. His will. So be careful what we think about man's ability in and of himself to make choices for God or against God until we are saved from this dominion of Satan. We have no free will in Satan. We have one will to do his will. Now you may not have thought it that way, but that's certainly how God has seen it and what Satan is doing to exercise it. As a result, God's people became enslaved to Satan, needing a deliverer for their freedom. Now, what am I doing? All we're doing is regurgitating, if you would, rehashing, remembering something of the Old Testament context. Because what we have in this verse 13 is Paul's language that refers to the great delivering work of God over God's delivering of his people Israel out of Egypt. What we see in verse 13 is pictured in the Exodus, and that's what Paul is referencing, and that's his frame. What he's saying here is what you see in Exodus, remember the Passover, and we'll talk about that in a moment. What you see there is fulfilled in this verse, is now brought to fruition. All that God was doing was to get us to this place of delivering us from our enslavement into the freedom of the sons of God. And so this is the great deliverance that God is referring to, that we were delivered from the bondage and slavery of Satan into God's kingdom. Now, to accentuate this, what Paul does, he uses particular language in this verse. He uses redemption language, deliverance language, and inheritance language. That's the language of this verse. To remind us that the great Old Testament example of this is God's deliverance of his people. Remember this. When Moses was called to the mountain, and the Lord says this, he says, my first God people whom he calls his son is going to be delivered. And he says in Exodus 4.22, my first son, my firstborn son had become enslaved to a cruel Pharaoh. So what God is picturing here is this, the people of Israel, remember, went into Egypt at the end of Genesis. And then there became a cruel king over them. And in this picture of this cruel king, this Pharaoh, God is saying, my people, my son is enslaved. 
my people, my son, is enslaved by this cruel ruler. We were all enslaved by Satan, even though we were sons of God, not knowing it yet until we were delivered, we were still in God's mind and intention, his sons and his daughters. But we were enslaved to a cruel ruler, just as Israel was enslaved to Pharaoh's rule. So that's the picture that Paul is dealing with. Therefore, what happened? God commissioned Moses, you remember, Moses as the Old Testament deliverer. If you were to ask any Jew of that day, today I don't know because I don't know how much, you know, they believe their own Torah. But any good Jew would tell you, if you ask him, who is the great deliverer? They would tell you what? Moses is. Why? What happened? Because Moses delivered us from Egyptian slavery. Remember that? And the Passover. That's what they would tell you. Moses is the great deliverer. And so as what Moses did in the Old Testament is a picture of what will be fulfilled in this second Moses to give us this second exodus, excuse me, exodus or deliverance, which is pictured in Exodus and which is fulfilled in Christ. So what does God tell Moses? He says, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. You may deliver them. You may bring them out. You see the terminology and the understanding of the reference in verse 13 of Colossians, having been what? Delivered out of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his son. You see that in this passage. Now, we're going to deliver out of Egypt. Now, when he takes them out of, what does that presuppose? We're going to. We're going somewhere. Where are we going? He says, I have come in verse 3, 8. I have come down to deliver them. Deliver. You see Colossians 1.13. You understand what Paul is doing, the terminology that he's using. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, for we have deliver, been delivered what? From the domain of darkness. We have been delivered out of the hands of the Egyptians, if you would, to bring them to that land into, out of that land, into a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. We have been delivered from the domain of darkness. We, God is delivering his people out of Egypt, and he's taking them into a new land called the promised land. And in Colossians, Paul says, and we have been transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved son. Now, why do we share this? Because, you see, we need to make sure that we see that what Paul is doing is collecting the great work and revelation of God in the Old Testament into these verses that we're reading in the New Testament so that once again we see that this Bible of ours is not just two books, but everything that is in the New Testament has already been delivered to us in the Old. The difference is that in the new, it is now being fulfilled. That everything the old spoke about, every teaching of the old, everything is contained in the Old Testament. There's no new doctrine in the New Testament. It's all in the old. It's just there in types and shadows and bits and pieces, and we don't see it in its fullness. 
But in the incarnation and in the continuing work of Jesus, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the giving of the Holy Spirit, all the way until the end, this is where what has been completely delivered in the old is now being manifested and fulfilled in the new. So we need to know what the old is in order to better understand the new. I think we understand that. So this is what Paul is telling the church in Colossians 12 and 13. God has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. How has he done it? He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. This is what he's done. He's taking us out of Egypt and he has taken us to the promised land. Now, what is so important about the promised land? Because when you read the Old Testament, especially the Pentateuch, remember what the Pentateuch is? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Penta, Penta 5. The Pentateuch, or the Torah, the book of the law, the first five books of the Old Testament. What's so important about it? If you were to read the Pentateuch, especially beginning in Genesis 12 and moving on, where God meets Abraham and starts talking about a land, a land, a land, a land, getting into Exodus, I'm delivering you, so we're going into a land, a land, and land. And Deuteronomy, you know, and uh, we're ready to go into the land. No, we can't go in the land because they got a lot of tall people there. So for 40 years, God is disciplining his people and training them to go what? Into the land. So we get to Deuteronomy. Now we're ready to go into the land, into the land, into the land land and when you get into the land this is how you're supposed to live this is what you're supposed to do and this is how you're supposed to conquer and Joshua you're supposed to do this take over the land and conquer the land and throw out all the enemies of God and get rid of everything in the land so everybody in the land is God's people and the whole land is a place of God's worship amen what's so important about this land why why has God promised a land to Abraham that is the central focus of all of his work in the Pentateuch, it's, and for the rest of the Bible, but especially accentuated in this Pentateuch. What's the deal? It was a type of the Garden of Eden. Joel 2.3 tells you that the promised land is a type of the Garden of Eden. So what is that all about? Remember what the Garden of Eden is all about. It is the place of God's dwelling with his image bearers. The place of God's dwelling is the place of his sanctuary, his temple, his earthly throne, the place where he rules and reigns through his obedient people. It is the garden that God has proposed to invade the entire earth so that the entire earth becomes the living, vibrant garden of Eden populated by God's obedient image bearers so that the whole earth be filled with the glory of God. That's what the Eden, uh, Garden of Eden was all about. And so in the promised land, as we remember we taught back there in Genesis, the promised land is a picture of God's desire to recover that which was lost by Adam, to recover it through his people so that in his people dwelling in this land, this picture of the Garden of Eden, God now in this people led by a godly king as a godly people would begin once again to extend the borders of this country, this land, this Garden of Eden outward beyond the normal boundaries into the entire earth so that in this people the glory of God and the knowledge of God would fill the earth through Israel. 
God's son as Adam was God's son. But you remember, of course, that they failed and they failed and they failed. Picturing once again, there's only one son that can succeed where all other sons fail. So that's a picture of the Garden of Eden. Again, why do we emphasize that? Because that's what God is doing here. We want to see these issues, these pictures, these fulfillments as much larger than just, yeah, it's a land. What's so important about a land? Who cares? God is not interested in land. Honey child, God is very interested in land. That's why he's creating a new heaven and a new earth, a new land where we will dwell with him forever. This is central to the fulfillment of God's purpose. And I hear Christians all the time, God isn't in it. You haven't read your Bible yet. Not in an understanding way. That's why we need to be filled with all wisdom and understanding. So we'll know what God is doing here. Yes, he's very vitally important. Why? Because it's, it's significant. It's central to the way God fulfills his purpose. You see, we're not going to be disembodied spirits floating around playing harps with wings. Jesus is coming back, and he is going to create a brand new heaven where heaven and earth come together as one, having destroyed the old creation, so that in this new earth, this new heaven, remember the heaven comes down, the temple comes down, you read some of the stories, that God and man dwell together and the light of this land will no longer be sun and moon and, and stars and uh, general electric and all that, but the Lamb himself will be the light. Remember the light we talked about last week, saints in light. And this land will be a land where God's glory is displayed through his people forever. And we're going to have activities. We're going to have standing. We're going to have relationships. We're going to have responsibilities. We're going to have giftings. We're going to have rewards in a real land. We're not going to be disembodied spirits, and we're not going to be floating around with wings. We are going to be human beings with the same kind of body that Jesus has, same kind of body, after the similitude, Paul says, of the body of Christ. And we're going to have glorified bodies as he has. That's our destiny. Amen. That's our future. Amen. This is what God has done. And this is where we're going. Let me get back to where I was. You see, in giving them the promised land, God was picturing the fulfillment of his creation mandate to Adam. Do we begin to see why Genesis is so important? The first three chapters are significant to everything else. God's intention for Israel, his son, remember, was that Israel would fulfill what Adam, his son, Luke 3.38 at the end of the genealogy said, Adam, God's son. That what Adam, Israel was to fulfill what Adam failed to do, to be his image-bearing nation, to take dominion of the whole earth through their obedience, through Israel. That's what God wants to do. Now Paul's language in 1.13 of Colossians remind us that Israel's exodus from Egypt Egyptian captivity is fulfilled in the church's deliverance from the domain of Satan. Israel was delivered. But it wasn't a perfect or an absolute deliverance. Why? They fell into sin. They fell into sin. They fell into sin. So when is the perfect absolute deliverance coming? In the church. What all of the Old Testament is picturing the church is fulfilling what God is saying I'm going to do in the Old Testament. We are the living fulfillment of that. Do we get that today? Look around. We are the living fulfillment of what God has intended from the very beginning. 
what we see in all that history is livingly being fulfilled right here, right today, right among us. We're the living fulfillment of that. As a result, the promised land into which the church is transferred is the kingdom of God's Son. Now look at the word kingdom. What word do you see in the beginning of kingdom? K-I-N-G, kingdom. Once again, Paul uses language from the Old Testament when he uses the kingdom, the word kingdom. And by the way, every time when you see the word kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of Christ in the New Testament, every time you see it, please make sure you accentuate the word king. So what does kingdom presuppose, Mike, that there is going to be a king? Do we see that, Ruth? There's going to be a king, therefore it's called a kingdom. We miss this. When we read our Bibles, we miss these things, and we need to see them. So what is so significant about calling this people a kingdom? Because, you see, it once again refers to what God's purpose is for his people. Adam and his progeny were to be rulers on the earth or kings. They were going to be ruling in the name of or as God's regents over the creation, kings. And so in this word kingdom, once again, Paul has reference to Paul, uh, Adam in mind. Adam was to be God's priest king. You remember? We talked about a lot of that. He was to be God's priest king upon the earth who was to have dominion over all the earth, filling it with the knowledge of God. And in freeing Israel, God's purpose was that they, that this nation would be, quoting Exodus 19, 6, quoting what God says, that they would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Israel was to be fulfilling the mandate that God had given to Adam. Now, king, where else do we see this issue, this terminology, this promise of king? You remember we talked about it when God made his covenant with David. You remember in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. I will raise up your seed or offspring. What, what is so significant about the word seed? Seed. Seed. Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman. Tie it together. I will raise up your seed. I'm going to bring forth the seed of the woman through you. Through you, David. And this seed will be the king. Do you see how it comes together? You see the word, the tapestry of the word of God. Remember what Galatians 3.16 says. And referring to seed, he didn't say seeds, but he referred to seed with Abraham and to David as speaking of one who is what? Christ. Remember, we discussed some of those things. Genesis 3.15, after you, I will raise up your offspring, your seed, who shall come from your body, a man, a man, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house in my name. What is the house? The church. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Jesus says all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. He sits on the throne of God, ruling and reigning and returning one day. And we are in him and with him to rule and reign over this new creation that's coming. Amen? That's what God has done in Christ.
by freeing us from the domain of darkness and transferring us into the kingdom of God's dear Son. It isn't here yet, but it's coming. And one day the great trumpet of the Lord shall sound and the shout of the archangel and Christ himself shall return and we will be with him forever. And so there will be a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness reigns through us. Amen? Yes. Paul tells the Colossians that God has pictured what God has pictured in Exodus and in Solomon has been accomplished in them. Remember what 1 Peter says. This has been accomplished. This kingdom, you are a kingdom of priests. David, you're going to have a descendant who's pictured in Solomon specifically, and this man shall sit on the throne. And by the way, when you look at the rule and reign of Solomon until chapter 12 of, you know, uh, uh, 2 Samuel, is it? No, no, 1 Kings. Solomon is doing real well until he gets these women in his lives. You know, he had a real fault here. And, but the nation grows. It prospers. It extends its boundaries. It's the largest and most prosperous that it would ever be. And God said there will be rest on every side. Rest from all the warfare. And what does Jesus say? Come unto me all ye who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. And God on the seventh day, what? Rested. You see, it's a context of God himself, his glorious work and the effect of his work in us that Paul is after here, that God is after here in using this terminology. This kingdom of priests and kings is a kingdom where God's work is completed God's work of creation is completed where all the attacks of the enemy and the woes of sin are finally and forever put away and dispelled from us. Amen? It is a place of rest. How many of us yearn for that place one day where no longer are we thrown about by every wave of doctrine, no longer are we tossed about by temptations, by the woes of the world, by the difficulties, by whatever, by all that is within us. One day we yearn, Paul talks about this in Romans 8, we yearn for that day when God will deliver us as the children of his kingdom into this new kingdom. Amen? We feel it. Don't you feel it? Oh, God, when, when, when? And how does John end his great work? Maranatha, which means what? Come quickly. Oh, Jesus, come quickly. You see, we yearn for that. We have it in us. So this is what God has done. So 1 Peter 2.15 says this, You yourselves address to us like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. Remember? The throne over the house of David. To be a holy priesthood. Remember in Exodus? Didn't I just quote that? Yeah, Exodus, yeah, 19.6. Holy priesthood offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are that people today that Adam was created to be and that his offspring were to be. We are now the living fulfillment of Genesis 1.26. And the whole earth is being impacted by the gospel everywhere, right? And one day the Lord will come and put an end to this rule of Satan and bring about his own rule. And we're going to rule with him forever. Uh, 
Next week, I don't think I should go into the rest of the um, outline today because I think we'll be here for another hour. So what we'll just do is next week we'll go into verse 14. Amen. So let's do 14 next week, although I was going to go into 15 and 16. So let's just see where we go. So thank you for being here today.